or just listening to Dale and Joan reminded me of just that we have one life, that's it. What are we holding back for? What are we saving ourselves for? We're in the final round. This is the fourth quarter and this is what God has called us to do. We have one life and to uh, consider um, just how you'll be serving the Lord with your life, lives for the past, next uh, 14 months. It thrills and encourages me and all of us. Uh, we're fully behind you and through prayer and support and long to hear this good report of uh, God's work halfway around the world. And it's our hope and prayer, our desire, that they are the first of many to go abroad from our church. It is our desire, maybe in three to five years, we'll have uh, thoughts throughout the world of Cornerstone members um, serving the Lord in all these different nations and heralding the gospel to different people. May you indeed be uh, the first of many. Next Sunday, during communion service, uh, our believers gathering, uh, we're going to have a time of an opportunity to give to missions. I agree with what Pastor Marcus said, that what the church needs is um, just opportunity. Opportunities to serve, opportunities to share the gospel, and opportunities to give. It is somewhat difficult for me to uh, speak about giving, to preach and teach about giving. And I try to trace it back to the root of my difficulty. I think some of it has to do with watching too much TVN. Uh, years past, you know, I watched TBN just to kind of, you know, get fire in my bones, you know, get pumped up or write doctrine and theology. But when I see uh, these TBN pastors plead and just kind of, you know, beg for money and use all kinds, kinds of deceptive practices to uh, get funds, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth and I, I just don't want to be seen in that way at all. So out of my pride, I think, I avoid really uh, even giving opportunity for uh, the Lord's work and investing in kingdom work. Well, I need to overcome my pride and really speak the whole counsel of God. Next week, we'll have an opportunity for believers to, to give one-time offering. One time. We'll collect it. We're not going to collect it every week or every month. Once a year during April, one-time offering um, to support our missionaries, summer missionaries, and also Dale and Joan. And they'll be collected during second hour. So we hope and pray that you would consider your finances, consider your budget, and um, volitionally, voluntarily, proportionally give to the Lord, to the Lord's work. Also, we're going to give, you, give all of you an opportunity to uh, pledge an amount monthly specifically for Dale and Joan for the next 14 months. Um, Paul said in Corinthians that no soldier serves at his own expense. So if you join the Marines, you don't have to go buy your own weapon. You don't have to go to Burger King and go through drive-thru to, to eat. You don't have to buy your own uniforms. It's not like some guys have, you know... Saks Fifth Avenue uniforms and other guys have uh, Mervyn's uniforms or something or Ross. You know, they all have the same uniforms given by the government. Right? All their meals, all their lodging, all they ha have to worry about is serving their uh, commander, advancing the cause of the government, um, just going into battle. So that's what we want to do. We want to provide for Dale and Joan and all the pastors here and all our missionaries all of their needs, so that all we need to worry about is uh, battling and fighting for the cause of Christ. So, we're going to give you an opportunity to commit to a 14-month pledge, $5 a month. You know, skip one uh, fast food meal a month, or maybe two, or maybe, you know, cut out an expense here. I, I read this two weeks ago that Americans spent $1.2 billion on ringtones, right? Is that absurd? Is that ridiculous? $1.2 billion because people want like unique ringtones. And then $1.4 billion for video games to play on your cell phones. And so we're indeed living in a crazy world where people are throwing away, literally throwing away money. Well, we want to give you an opportunity to invest 
in God's work, in something that is eternal, and it'll cause you to grow in Christ as well. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. As you give to the work of Christ, where your treasure is, your heart will be also, and your prayer life will be affected, your word life, your fellowship, your this Christian walk will be built up by this investment. So we want to encourage you to consider giving um, in these two ways. Great. Well, let's continue our study in John 15. And John 16 actually has a typo or my email mistake Verse up to verse 4. Start, start by telling all of you that my daughter has probably three of favorite places in the world for her. She's a three-year-old girl. There's three places that I guess would be her favorite, um, most favorite. I don't know. Uh, home, church, and Disneyland. Right? I guess if she would ask her, and she would need a little, little bit of help, but she would say home first and church and Disneyland. Undoubtedly, if we were to ask her who her favorite people are in the world, she would say parents, and she better say parents. And then she would say church, people at church. And then she would say Disney characters like Mickey Mouse. Uh, she likes all the Disney characters except for Goofy. Uh, she does not like Goofy. Um, I asked her why and she says, Goofy's scary. <laughs> and I said, why is Goofy scary? And she said, because I'm a scary cat. <laughs> so outside of Goofy, she loves all the Disney characters. Well, one of these days, Probably sometime in the distant future, maybe when, she's, when she turns, maybe 13, 15, or 16, we'll have to have a talk with our daughter, or maybe daughters, and tell them that the world is not like Disneyland. That the real world is much different than family, a ch- home, church, and Disneyland. And people in the world are very different than parents, the people in the church, and the characters of Disneyland that many people are different, they will treat them differently, and that this world can be a scary place. So we need to have her, we sit her down and prepare her and give her many warnings so that she knows that this world can be a very difficult, challenging place. <clears throat> well, this is exactly what our Lord is doing here in John 15, verses 18 and on. In the previous passage, our Lord told the disciples to love one another as He has loved them. And He contrasts the love that they are to have for one another with the hatred that they will receive from this world. He is contrasting the two. He says, you have to love one, love one another because you are all you got, each other. The love that they, they would have for one another will be all the love that they would know. Because once they leave the fellowship of Christians, the world is going to hate them. It is not just a warning again, but it's also a motivation to all the more love one another. And so he tells them these things so that they might be prepared. So that they might not be surprised. He doesn't give them false promises. He doesn't plan here false expectations for their future. He lays out clearly that they have troubled futures ahead of them. And you know what? It's a very good thing that our Lord did this because the twelve apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Matthias, who replaced Judas. Twelve apostles would indeed be hated by this world, undergo many trials, and suffer for the gospel. Uh, Eusebius, probably the most important of the early church historians, wrote in A.D. 325, that these apostles scattered over the whole world and preached the gospel everywhere. These twelve were godly men, godly pastors, eminent missionaries, 
And it was a good thing that our Lord prepared them because 11 out of the 12 would die as a martyr for the faith. 11 out of the 12. Church tradition and church history tells us that each of the apostles would pay the ultimate price for the cause of Christ and that not one of them denied the faith. Each of them had the opportunity to recant their testimony, to deny knowing Christ, deny their faith, and turn back once for all on their faith. But all 11 out of the 12, to the end, held fast to their testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, and by faith in Him, one receives eternal life. You know, last week we saw the Taliyabo video, second hour. If you, if you weren't here, you have to rent it from Jason, Pastor Jason and see it for yourself. A heart-wrenching, soul-encouraging video on the Taliyabo people responding to the Gospel of Christ and the whole village uh, repenting and trusting in the Lord. And you're watching it, you know, I was sitting in the front row and I thank God for that because I was, I was like just this, this close to losing it. You know, I was... Tears are welling up in my eyes and it was just so stirring. You know, I almost lost it. And I heard many of you just being so encouraged and thrilled to hear of their response. But what if the many groups, what about the many groups who are hostile to the faith? Like the Akua Indians who killed Jim Elliot and three of his fellow missionaries. If you were called to such a, a, a mission field, would you be encouraged? Maybe Dale and Joan, if they knew for the next 14 months, they would endure nothing but hostility, nothing but rejection, nothing but hatred by the people at Czech Republic. Would they be as eager and excited? Would we be as eager and excited to send them? Well, these 12 all knew that hatred, opposition, and persecution, nothing but these things awaited them. And yet, they went willingly. They went joyfully. Church historian Schumacher researched the lives of these apostles and this is his accounting of their martyrdoms. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia. He was killed by a sword. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt after being dragged by horses to the streets until he was dead. Luke, writer of Luke, was hanged in Greece as a result of his tremendous ministry of preaching to the lost. Peter, we know, was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross, according to church tradition. James the Just, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown over a over hundred feet down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. When they discovered that he survived the fall, his enemies beat James to death with, a club, with clubs. James the Greater, a son of Zebedee, a strong leader of the church, was ultimately beheaded to death at Jerusalem. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was a missionary to, to Asia. He was martyred in Armenia when he was flayed to death by whips. Andrew was also crucified on an X-shaped cross in Petrus, Greece. Apostle Thomas went to India and proclaimed the gospel there and he was stabbed with a spear during one of his missionary trips. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas Iscariot, was stoned and then he was beheaded. The apostle Paul was tortured, imprisoned, and beheaded by the emperor Nero A.D. 67. The only one to escape martyrdom was the Apostle John, the beloved Apostle. But he suffered greatly. Because of his faith, he was thrown into a cauldron of oil and his whole body was burnt. But he miraculously survived. They sent this aged man in an exile to the island of Patmos where he had the visions of Revelation. After that, he was able to escape. He was freed. And he went to Odessa in modern-day Turkey to serve as a pastor there. He's the only one. He suffered, but he did not die a martyr's death. He died peacefully. These 12 men suffered greatly as predicted by Christ. And they endured, endured to the end. 
are we thankful that they endured? Are we thankful that not one of them recanted their faith? What a disheartening example it would have been, discouragement to all of us, if even one of them straight away fell away. Now, how were they able to endure and be faithful? Right? How were they able to do this? Simply, it's because of the six truths that they learned in John fifteen eighteen through 16 and 4. They were prepared. They knew to expect such opposition. So therefore, they knew to respond with faith. These men were not misled by Christ. He didn't give them false promises. He didn't give them a watered-down, truncated, compromised, sugar-coated message promising health, wealth, prosperity, and comfort, promise of Disneyland, and they're, they're lulled along, and they get uh, hatred and persecution. If that were to have happened, they would have fallen away because they weren't ready. Our Christ didn't do that. He prepared them. He gave them these six truths to prepare them for the persecution that is to come. In verse 18, He says, I want you to know these things. Verse 20, remember this. Verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Well, it is the same for us. It is the same for us. Persecution, opposition, being hated and rejected by the world is not an option for the friends of Christ. If you are a believer, if you are a friend of Christ, it's not a matter of if you'll be persecuted, but it's a matter of when. It's a matter of degree. Not an option for us. So, when we go through such trials, when we suffer, when we are hated in this way, we find in our passage for this morning six truths we need to remember when we are persecuted for Christ. The first truth is found in verse 18. It's that Jesus was first hated by this world. Christ said that the world hates you, and it does, and it will. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Christ is telling us, know this, that that I was hated first. That He was hated and persecuted throughout His ministry career. It wasn't like He had an easy going life and at the end He fell into a tragic end. No, from the very beginning, from the onset of His ministry, He faced hostile opposition from the Jewish leaders. In fact... He was fully prepared for such opposition because it was prophesied, it was predicted in the Scriptures, Isaiah 49, 7. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to Him who was despised and hated by the nations. Isaiah 53, 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, So to Jesus, knowing the Old Testament, it was not a surprise that He would be hated by the world. He expected it. He was prepared. Now, we need to define who the world is referring to. The Greek word is cosmos, used uh, repeatedly in the Gospel of John. It has several meanings depending on the context. But here, in John 15, it must refer to the false religious system of Judaism set up by the religious leaders of Israel at this time. It must refer to false religion, particularly Judaism. Why do we see this? John 16, verse 3, they will put you out of the synagogue. Right? The Romans wouldn't do this. The Gentiles, right? they wouldn't. Their form of persecution wasn't to put you out of the synagogue. It was the Jewish leaders that would do this. So the hatred that Christ is talking about is from the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the leaders of Israel. Indeed, the Gospel writers all point out that there was a settled hatred with the Jewish leaders against Christ. 
repeatedly throughout the Gospels, they vilified Him with their words. They accused Him of abominable and unspeakable things. In Matthew 9, 10, 11, they, in a disparaging way, called Him a friend of tax collectors and sinners, insinuating that He is like them in every way. In John 7, they called, these religious leaders called Jesus a deceiver and hypocrite. Right? They were personal attacks. Right? They, they had nothing to say about his, about his teaching. So they attacked him personally. John 7.20, they said he was full of the devil, he was demon-possessed. In John 7.15, they called him a false prophet. In 8.13, called him a liar. 8.48 called him a Samaritan. 9.13 called him a sinner. In 10.20 they said he was crazy, he was insane. In 10.31 of the Gospel of John they called him a blasphemer. They just followed Christ wherever he went and vilified him and blasphemed him at every opportunity. You know, his death was not the only attempt upon his life. His death on the cross was the only attempt that succeeded. Throughout his life, these leaders attempted to kill Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, 28, they attempted to throw him off a cliff because of his sermon. That's a very intense response to the Word of God. I haven't encouraged such a response yet, but when Jesus preached, they didn't repent. They didn't have a response prayer. They didn't get on their knees. They dragged him outside. They wanted to throw him over a cliff. In John 5.18, when Jesus claimed equality with God, they sought to kill Him. In John 8.59, when He claimed to be God, when He said, before Abraham I am, I am they started to look for stones. Right? They started to pick up stones. In John 12.9-11, they conspired to kill Jesus. And not just Jesus, but His friend Lazarus as well. In John 18, the Jews are adamant in their conspiracy in their desire to kill Jesus. And in John 19, they succeeded. They led Him away to be crucified. Their hatred was such that it extended even after His death. Even after His death. The Talmud is a collection of books and commentaries by Jewish rabbis from A.D. 250 to A.D. 500. It's a collection of comments by Jewish rabbis. In this book, they consider Jesus' name so blasphemous, they do not mention His name. It says, That man, a certain one, the son of a woodworker, the one who was hanged. And their prayer to God is this, that His name and memory be blotted out. Their prayer is that the name of Jesus be blotted out. And any memory, any recollection of Him will be erased the Talmud accuses Jesus of being illegitimate, of possessing the soul of Esau and being Esau himself. This commentary of the Old Testament accuses Jesus of being a fool, of being insane, of being a conjurer and a magician. They called Jesus, that man, an idolater, a seducer, crucified for his crimes. And they say that Jesus is buried in hell. The Talmud says that. They're not content that he crucified, that he was crucified on a cross. He died a humiliating death. The hatred is such that they want to vilify him even to this day. Now, what is the reason for their hatred? Why do they hate Christ? Why, is the re- Why do they hate Christ so much? John three nineteen. This is the verdict: Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Our Lord by His life, by His ministry of teaching, by His character and conduct, by His mercy and compassion, He exposed their evil. He exposed the bankruptcy of their false religion. By His life and prayer is revealed that their rituals, traditions, elaborate ceremonies, their absurd clothing was all just a cover-up of their spiritual bankrupt state. That is why when Christ came upon um, sinners, quote-unquote sinners, when He 
came upon tax collectors like Matthew or Zacchaeus, when prostitutes or the dregs of society, when the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the leprous, when the outcasts of society came upon Christ, they all loved Christ because they saw genuine compassion, genuine love, true righteousness. But when those who claim to be righteous, those who claim to have a special relationship with God, those who claim to be holy and godly, claim to have a special knowledge of God, when they met Christ, they hated Him. Because Christ revealed that they had no special knowledge, no special relationship. They were not holy and godly men at all. Christ exposed them as they are, as deceivers, as spiritually bankrupt. And so they hated Christ, and Christ drank the cup of their hatred. Though without fault, without sin, though perfect in every way, though above blame in temper, word and in deed, though abounding in good works and charity towards the sick and poor, though He was full of kindness and mercy, He was hated until His last breath. These religious leaders were united with the Roman government in pouring contempt on Him and they were not satisfied. They were not rested until He was dead. Christ says, the world hates you. Remember, hated me first. So when we are hated, when we suffer, when we are persecuted, we need to remember that. That ought to encourage us. Now the world often tells us that the reason for their hatred towards Christians is because of our hypocrisy. It's because of our arrogance, our corruption. And yes, that is true. Too often times that is true. And And yes, we do openly confess and openly repent of our many sins. Open shame belongs to us because of our unfaithfulness. But we tell them, do not lie to us. Do not twist the truth. Do not deceive us. The reason you hate Christians is not because of our hypocrisy, our supposed arrogance, or our corruption. The reason they hate us is because of the grace we have received from Christ. We know this is true because we remember that our spotless and blameless Master, who was without any hypocrisy, without any amount of pride or corruption was bitterly hated and rejected by the world. What was their excuse for hating Christ? This simple fact alone should sustain our hearts and prevent us from being cast down by the hatred of this world when we are misunderstood, ignored, rejected, or vilified, when our lives and our faith is mocked or threatened. We must consider that Christ was first hated, even though He was perfect, and that we are sharing our Master's portion. J.C. Rao asks some penetrating questions. Do we deserve to be better treated than our Master? He was hated. We're following Him. Do we deserve any better? Are we any better than Him? Should we expect something different if we're following Christ? He exhorts believers, let us fight against these murmuring thoughts. Let us drink quietly with humble joy the cup which the Father has given to us. This is so important. Peter picks picks upon this theme in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. He tells Christians, we're undergoing persecution, but we shouldn't be surprised. Christ told us already, and I told you, this is not something strange form for the Christian. This is the part and parcel of the Christian life, being rejected by this world. Apostle John picks it up as well. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, my dear brothers, if the world hates you. We ought not be surprised. The first truth to remember is that Christ was first hated by the world. Second truth is that persecution helps prove that we are indeed chosen friends of Christ. 
persecution helps prove that we are indeed the chosen friends of Christ. Verse 19, If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In this verse, our Lord shows us that the hatred of the world, though it is painful to bear, is a satisfactory evidence of our state before God. It is a one clear sign that we have true faith. If we are hated and rejected by this world, it is one of the marks of conversion, of true repentance, of true faith. That is why we are happy, Matthew 5.12. Christ said, blessed are you, you are happy. When others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, because of me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. What is that reward? It's, it's salvation. It's eternal life. It's Christ. You should rejoice when you are hated by this world. Because you have a reward in heaven, the reward of salvation. That is why we are to be happy when we are rejected. That is why we ought to rejoice. Because when the world rejects us, it is a sign of God that He accepts us. It is a sign, a symptom of a work begun by the Holy Spirit, which can never be undone. This is the joy of suffering. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5, 27 through 29. And here in the book of Acts, in chapter 3, chapter 5, and, and on through the rest of the book, we see the fulfillment of Christ's predictions in, in John 15. Here we see uh, Peter and the apostles being persecuted for their faith and their response to their, to their suffering. Verse 27, um, they were preaching the gospel in the temple grounds. They had healed a man and they had put them in prison. An angel of the Lord set them free. Next morning, they were discovered in the temple grounds again, still preaching the name of Christ. They arrest them again. They set them before the council. Verse 27. And the high priest questioned them. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet you are here. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. And look at Peter's boldness. Whom you killed. I'm sure he's pointing his finger at the high priest. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at, at, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. They have this you know, meeting these uh, religious leaders of Israel and they don't know what to do. Well, they agree to, to beat them and let them go. Verse 40, they called the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And they give verse 41, their response. Then they left the presence of the council. What's that word? Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were kind of worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It was a disgraceful thing to be publicly beaten. You know, as an, as an adult man. I mean, humiliating now, but in such a shame culture as ancient Near East, to be publicly beaten like that was a humiliating, disgraceful, dishonorable thing. And their intention was, we'll humiliate them. And it's not really the physical pain, but the emotional offense. And by humiliating, in that, in the, humiliating them in this way, maybe it will shame them not to preach Christ any longer. But the response of the apostles was exactly the opposite. 
the effect was just the reverse. They rejoiced. They rejoiced. They rejoiced because they were permitted to Im- imitate the example of Christ. Because they, they know Christ was beaten. They know Christ was tortured and persecuted. Christ was scourged and reviled. And they were glad that they were permitted to be treated as He was. That is why when Christians were suffering, Peter told them in 1 Peter 4.13, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. You ought to rejoice because the sufferings that you are going through is you're, you're communing with Christ. That's what Paul desired in Philippians 3.13. I want to share in His sufferings. The sufferings that Christ endured, I want to go through the same exact thing and experience koinonia. Experience fellowship with Christ. They rejoiced because they were waiting for this. They were expecting this. Right? They were preparing themselves in prayer, in meditation of the Word. They were ready for battle. This is what they were preparing for. And when persecution came, they didn't respond with hatred. They didn't respond with bitterness and anger. They responded with joy. They responded by faith. And they passed the test. So all the more they were rejoicing. And ultimately they rejoiced because this was evidence that they were indeed the chosen friends of Christ. They were true followers of Christ. They've seen so many pretenders come and go. Right? Through Lord's three and a half years of ministry, they've seen so many who rejoiced at following Christ in the beginning and a little amount of difficulty, a little amount of challenge, they disappear from the face of this earth while they realize we're not like them. We're not like those who shrink back or destroyed. No, our faith is true. He has indeed chosen us. We are indeed chosen friends of Christ because we were humiliated. We were beaten. We were dishonored. But our faith passed the test. We were able to endure. Therefore, they were full of joy. First Peter 1, 6 and 7. This is what Peter told the believers who were suffering. Listen to this. In this you rejoice. For not for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter told them what he told himself when he was beaten. Rejoice. Because this suffering, and me enduring it, and you enduring it, reveals, is testing your faith, and reveals the genuineness of your faith. So for many of us, we, we live our Christian faith very cautiously, carefully, you know, very almost afraid because we have not lived out our faith, we have not been tested. So we're not sure if our faith is genuine or not. We're not certain if we're indeed chosen friends of Christ. Others in our church can live the Christian life with boldness and confidence. There is consistent joy. There is a sense of just confidence in Christ because we've lived the Christian life beyond the four corners of Bell Intermediate. We've lived our faith at home, in the workplace, in the mark in the world as well. And we've been hated, rejected, we've been persecuted, and yet we've endured. We responded by faith. And we've received the joy that comes from it. And we've, we've, we've discovered that our faith is indeed genuine. That is the source of our joy. And that is what, that is the reason for the joy of the believers here. You know, if I were to paraphrase James 2, you know, show me your faith by what you do. Uh, Maybe I would paraphrase it. Show me your faith, not just by what you do, but, but by what your faith costs you. Show me your faith by your sufferings for Christ. Show me your faith by how much you are hated by this world, how much you have suffered and sacrificed for Christ. Well, first, truth is that Jesus was hated by the world. Second is that persecution helps prove that we are indeed chosen friends of Christ. Third truth, 
It's somewhat like the first one. Hatred of Jesus is the reason for their hatred toward us. Hatred of Christ is the reason for their hatred toward us. Verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's a promise. Verse 21, All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Matthew 10.22, Christ said before, all men will hate you. Why? Because of me. The world will hate us and the world hates us because they hate Jesus Christ. They want to unleash their hatred towards Christ and they can't get at Christ. Christ is no longer here. Christ is dead. And because they still have bent up hatred, they, lead, they, they lash out against those who profess his name. You know, saw something very disturbing. I read something disturbing in the news. They caught a guy for committing a murder in like a Latin American country. The FBI and coordinated with the local, local uh, police agency there. They arrest this man, brought him out. And this guy killed the guy because he was a brother of the man he hated. So he was uh, going through L.A. looking for this guy because he wanted to murder him, and he couldn't find him. And when he saw his brother, he killed him instead. He couldn't get to the man he hated, so he got to the closest person that he could get to, his brother. Well, same thing. Christ saying, they will hate you, because they hate me. But I'll be raised in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God's throne. They can't do anything to me. So they will hate you. They will persecute you. Right? They will cause you to go through suffering. And it's not because of us. It is because of Christ. Fourth truth, there is no legitimate excuse for their hatred of Christ or the Father. No legitimate excuse for their hatred of Christ or the Father. Verse 22, If I had not come and spoke to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Now verse 22 is somewhat surprising, but it is a very important verse. One commentator said that it is the most important verse in, in the whole Gospel of John. Our Lord is not talking about sin in general, because whether He came or not, they're still sinners and they would still sin. He is talking about the sin of willful rejection in the presence of total revelation. The greatest sin that a man can commit is to have all of God's revelation given to him and still reject it. That's the greatest sin. And Christ is saying, you have committed the greatest sin. If I didn't come, you can't commit this greatest sin. Because I'm the total sum of God's revelation. I'm, a, I'm the divine picture of God. If I didn't come, you would not know this. You would not be guilty of this particular sin. But I have come. And I've given you full revelation of God and His plan for salvation. And you have still rejected it. And therefore, you are guilty. And you have no excuse. Right? Christ gave complete truth and they rejected it. It was just like uh, Moses and Pharaoh. Right? God sent Moses to reveal himself and more truth that was revealed to Pharaoh. His heart, instead of being softened by revelation, it was hardened. Well, likewise with the religious leaders of Israel, more Christ revealed himself, more they were hardened and when he revealed himself completely, they committed the worst sin. They rejected it completely. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. This is what that passage is talking about. Arguably one of the more most uh, misinterpreted passages of the New Testament, used as proof text by Arminians, saying that Christians can lose their salvation. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. 
He's talking about John 15:22. Hebrews 6 verse 4, "It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt, when someone has been enlightened with the full revelation of God, they have seen for themselves what the Holy Spirit can do. And yet, they reject the truth. He can never be turned from His rejection. He has made a full rejection in the face of total revelation. So there is no more truth that can be given to them to cause them to repent. Does that make sense? If someone knows only about the doctrine of God and they reject the gospel, then you can teach them about the doctrine of Christ, about grace, about mercy, about compassion, about depravity, about the Holy Spirit, about the miracles of Christ, on and on and on. So that with more revelation, the hearts will be softened to turn and repent and trust in Christ. But if they are exposed to complete revelation, all of it, and yet they reject it, reject it all, it is impossible to turn them back to Christ. Because there is no more revelation that can be given to them. This passage is not talking about a Christian losing their faith, losing their salvation, verses 7 through 9, reveals that. The context reveals that. Particularly verse 9, In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The verses prior refer to the man who has full revelation, but has not responded to it with saving faith. Therefore, they are without hope. Same thing is referred to in Matthew 12. Um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. What is that? It's the same thing as John 15:22. Religious leaders hear the teachings of Christ. They can't say anything evil about, about Christ's life, His conduct. They see Him perform miracle after miracle, verifiable miracles that can only be done by God coming in flesh. That's why even Nicodemus said in John 3, no one can do these things unless He was sent from God. And yet, how do they respond? They respond by saying, He is doing this by the power of Beelzebub. He is doing this by the power of demons. When Christ heard that, He warned them, don't you realize that I am giving you full revelation of God and if you reject this, you're committing the unpardonable sin in which there is no forgiveness because you're rejecting God Himself. If you have seen all the works that the Holy Spirit has done through me and yet you conclude that they were of Satan, you cannot be forgiven of such a sin you have no excuse. Right? If they're only given one portion of the truth, incomplete revelation, maybe they have an excuse, but they have no excuse because they've been given it all. Fifth truth to remember, and this is something to consider, and it's so, so foreign to us. Right? We need to maybe read Fox's Book of Martyrs. I read portions of that this week. And what they endured is so different than what we endure. We live in a free nation. And there is no physical persecution. But there are still places in the world, many places, where this is being acted out. But fifth truth that we, remember, we need to remember is that there is no limit to their hatred. No limit to their hatred. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. Put you out of the synagogue. This is a technical term. One word in the Greek, apa synagogas, apa out of synagogue, synagogue. They will expel you from the synagogue. Anybody who claimed, and the Jewish made an edict, that anyone who claimed Jesus as the Messiah would be immediately expelled from the synagogue, unsynagogued. The synagogue was a place where they met for fellowship, 
for worship, study of scripture, and for everything else. And so if you got unsynagogue, that means socially you are cut off from the life of Israel. No one would talk to you. No one would relate to you. Even your family members, you are ostracized, cast out, expelled. No relations at all. And economically, you are in trouble. Because you couldn't buy. You couldn't go to uh, the marketplace because there were uncultured foods. Right? There was cheese and pork intermixed with everything. So you couldn't go there to eat, purchase things. So you have to go to kosher markets, to the synagogue to purchase food and trade for what you needed. If you're on synagogue, economically, you and your family were in trouble. You were in very bad shape. You had no rights at all. There were three levels of being on synagogue. First level is Shemitah, which is on um, synagogue for 7 to 30 days. Right? For a limited time, you were dealt the harsh rebuke. And for 7 to 30 days, you were cut off from the life of Israel. Level 2 is over 30 days. No relationships, no fellowship, no economic transactions, no religious opportunities. You were cut off from the nation for at least the least of 30 days. The worst kind of being unsent of God was the permanent one. This was it. There was no steps of church discipline. You did something so horrible, immediately, permanently, once for all, you are cast out of your family, cast out of your relatives, cast out from the synagogue. And this was the consequence of anyone who professed faith in Christ. No limit to their hatred. Not only that, Christ continues, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They would consider it their religious duty, their worship to murder you. They would consider it one of their highest acts of following God and doing God's work if they chase you down, persecute you, and murder you. That would be the extent of their hatred and this was carried out in Acts chapter 9. He was Saul, right? a member of the Sanhedrin, religious leaders, a Pharisee, murdering Stephen. And he was proud of it. That was one of his badges that he wore because he was serving God. No limit to their hatred. That's what we ought to expect even today. Right? No limit to the hatred when the world hates us, we can't say, oh, you went too far. That is too much. No. We need to expect there is no limit of their opposition against us. And finally, final truth, the ultimate reason, the final reason for their hatred is that they do not know the Father. They do not know Christ. Verse 21. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know Him who sent me. Verse 3, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And this is the hardest fact for the religious world to swallow. They don't know God. Right? I mean, you can imagine how this was received by the religious leaders. This was their, what they prided themselves with. They know God. They know Yahweh. When Jesus repeatedly told them that they don't know God, they were greatly infuriated in crisis. This is the source of their hatred. Though they claim to know God, they don't. And so when we are persecuted, we must remember these things. Well, so many applications. Just few to close with. If you really live for Christ, you will face opposition from this world particularly from false religion. We need to speak the truth. Go after those who are being deceived and lied to and led astray by false religion. Islam, Judaism, Mormons, the Roman Catholic Church, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hindus, Buddhists, they're not just wrong about certain things. They are wrong about everything. They don't know Christ. 
They don't know God. They're living in deception. Only destruction is waiting for them if they hold to these, to their church's teachings. We, need, we must not be afraid of offending them and being you know, careful around them and, and being cautious and being sensitive. We need to be strong and proclaim the gospel fully, completely, and confrontationally to these men and women who are deceived by false religion. In fact, false religion under the guise of godliness has been the greatest persecutor of the truth throughout history. This religious world still hates Jesus and hates those who live for Him and love Him. So all the more, we need to run to them and proclaim the gospel to them. We must not be intimidated by Islam, intimidated to not go to these Muslim countries because of their hate towards Christ. This is what Christ promised. This is the part and parcel of the Christian life. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, Anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted, will suffer. There is a subtle temptation where we don't want to offend anyone. But when we do that, we violate everything that Jesus desires in our lives. Jesus offended the religious people of His time. He offended them. He offended them by His life. He offended them by His teachings. And if we are followers of Christ, we must do the same. As the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make us holy through His own blood. Hebrews 13.12 Let us then go to Him outside the camp bearing the disgrace that He bore. Let us be outcasts as well following Christ. A final application. Are you living holy lives? Are you confronting sin and calling what it is? Or are you a friend of this world? Are you a friend of the religious world? Are you a friend of the secular world? Are you reproving sin? Are you standing apart? First John 2.15 says, If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's either the world has become more Christian-like, and that's not the case, if you're comfortable in the world, and the case is the Christian has become more worldly. If you're comfortable in the world, it's either the world has become more holy, Christ-like, right, pure, and that's not the case. If you're comfortable in the world, the reason is Christian has become more worldly. James 4.4 4 says, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. You know, Christians, we want to love one another. We want to enjoy Christian love. As long as you are friends with the world, you will never enjoy the depth of Christian fellowship, the depth of love that Christians have one for another. It is when you step out of your comfort zone and experience rejection, hatred in this world. It is then when we come to fellowship and truly appreciate the distinctive fellowship that Christians have over against the world. The true love that we have for one another. Are you being hated by this world today? Are you being rejected? May that be the case to prove that you are indeed followers, friends, and obedient stewards of Christ. Our Father, we no one understand that this is the hard message for us from John 15. It is not comfortable for me to preach. It is not comfortable for us to consider. Not comfortable for us to hear. But it is plain as day that it is truth. It is uncomfortable because it exposes our laxity, our complacency, exposes how worldly we are as a church. We pride ourselves in so many things. And yet, when we soberly look at our relationships with 
those that are in the world, we confess it is far too comfortable. We have been deceived by this world in the name of tolerance to hide our Christian faith and to become partners and friends with those who hate you. Oh God, may you raise uh, individuals in our church who will seek to be your friend and to be rejected by this world and to be hated, to be ostracized, to be cast out from family, from family, to be rejected in friendships, and to maybe even lose jobs because of Christ so that you will be glorified and that our faith in you will be proven to be genuine and that our love for you and love for one another will be all the more sweet. May that, may such fruit be produced in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.